0: From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Talk about putting a damper on the wildlife find of the century. Some scientists now question the celebrated rediscovery of the ivory-billed woodpecker. Naturalists around the world rejoiced at news that the bird long thought extinct was spotted in an Arkansas swamp.
1: And it flew across the bayou right in front of us in good light. And we both yelled, ivory Bill, simultaneously.
0: Other scientists say it's a woodpecker all right, but maybe not the ivory-billed.
2: We're not questioning what those people thought they saw, but we can't know what they actually saw without some kind of proof.
0: The continuing quest for proof of the elusive ivory-billed woodpecker. Also, maxing out the mileage from hybrids. Getting the most from a gallon of gas gets downright competitive for some drivers. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. It's the feel-good wildlife story of the year. Dedicated birders trekking through the swamps of Arkansas catch sight of a majestic bird long thought extinct. Then, armed with video evidence, the birders make a dramatic announcement in April— They had rediscovered the ivory-billed woodpecker. Or had they? Other scientists now say it could be a case of mistaken bird identity. Jerry Jackson of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers is among the skeptics, and he joins us now. Welcome.
2: It's good to be here. Thank you.
0: Why do you doubt uh, this evidence that was presented?
2: Well, science moves forward on the strength of evidence that's presented and on the ability of other scientists to verify that evidence. The evidence that has been presented so far includes uh, visual observations that for which we have no documentation, and in addition, a very brief video that is suboptimal, uh, admittedly suboptimal even by those who wrote the paper in science.
0: Okay, suboptimal is a sounds like a delicate way of putting it. You don't think that's the bird, do you?
2: We don't know whether it's the bird or not, but we we look at this as those authors have provided us with tremendous hope, and the world has reacted to the hope that they have provided. But hope is not truth. It's only the fire that incites us to seek the truth, and the truth is still out there.
0: What do you think is in that uh, video there?
2: Well, we have analyzed the video frame by frame and looked at the obvious... Uh, potential, and that is that it's a pileated woodpecker, and and we believe that the video shows a pileated woodpecker that's flying away. The pileated, incidentally, is a very common bird in bottomland forests across the southeast and in old-growth forests and even in some suburban areas across North America. We're not questioning what those people thought they saw, but we can't know what they actually saw without some kind of proof.
0: Dr. Jerry Jackson teaches at the Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Jackson.
2: Thank you. I've enjoyed it.
0: So, is the ivory build really back, or was this just some wishful woodpecker thinking? Tim Gallagher says it's the real thing. He says he saw the bird in that Arkansas swamp, and he joins us now from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Mr. Gallagher, welcome to Living on Earth.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Um, Mr. Gallagher, you have a book just out that documents your search for the ivory build. It's called The Grail Bird, Hot on the Trail of the Ivory Build Woodpecker, and it became the story of your sighting of the bird, but I guess it, it started out a little differently. You had this project to to talk to other people who claimed that they had seen this bird in past years.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of these people had seen them years ago, and everyone knew they'd seen them. It was in uh, the famous Singer tract of northeast Louisiana, and it had—it uh, was the last known stronghold of the ivory-billed woodpecker. And I spoke with people who'd seen the birds in the 1930s and 40s, including some, some kids who grew up near there. And uh, also, Nancy Tanner, who was the widow of James Tanner, who was the Cornell grad student in the late 1930s who studied the birds there. But I started also interviewing people who'd seen them more recently. Sometimes it was 30 or 40 years ago, and I started f- visiting these people and and interviewing them face-to-face about their sightings. And if they sounded credible, I would go out there and check them out.
0: In the course of uh, checking out one of these accounts, this is what led you to this this swamp with this great name, the the Bayou de Vue, and quite a view it had, huh? What, what, what happened there?
1: Well, we'd spent the night out the night before, and we were going to float the entire length of this bayou looking for the bird, and we didn't necessarily expect to see a bird. We just wanted to evaluate the habitat and see if this was worth spending any more time there. And on the second day out, about one fifteen in the afternoon, Bobby Harrison and I were canoeing down the bayou there and all of a sudden we spotted this bird coming up beside slough and it just emerged in front of us Uh, we measured later it was only 68 feet away and it flew across the bayou right in front of us in good light and it was swinging up like it was going to land on this tree and we both yelled ivory bill simultaneously and probably spooked it to be honest because it veered away from the tree and it flew further into the woods And we got over to the side and jumped out of the canoe, sunk to our knees right away, and just were scrambling through there as fast as we could go, pulling ourselves over logs and through branches. And finally, after about 15 minutes of of that, we sat down on a log, and and Bobby just let out a sigh and said, I saw an ivory bill, and he started
0: sobbing. And um, you, had, you had some trepidation, I guess, about sharing with uh, these scientists what you had seen. Well, that's
1: right. For more than half a century, um, Ivorybill sightings have been looked at in the same way as a Sasquatch sighting or Loch Ness monster. And people had been, other ornithologists had been laughed at in the past over the years. And so it was quite a step. And I I hadn't slept for a couple of days just worrying about announcing this to the lab of ornithology that I'd seen this bird. These
0: uh, expert uh, birders and scientists, they joined you down there. You spent, a, long story short, a, a lot of time in some some thick, uh, mucky swamps. Several people claimed they saw the bird. You got a clip of video and published in, in, in Science uh, Magazine, the results here, what do you make what do you make of this challenge to your evidence? Well,
1: I look at it like this is the scientific process. You publish a paper and uh, people give you their response and you go from there. I mean, we welcome this kind of inquiry, and uh I'm absolutely certain that our results will be borne out that we did indeed see an Ivorville woodpecker out there
0: now you are clearly a a very passionate uh Chaser of this bird, uh, you you believed very strongly that it was out there, and then you found it out there. Some might take this in and say maybe he believed it was out there so much that he saw it when it when it wasn't there. Did uh, did your emotion taint your your ability to be objective about what you were seeing?
1: Well, no, it didn't. I've I've always been an objective observer. I've As a bird watcher, I tend to be conservative. I'm not the person who's going out there and and saying I found this fabulous bird over here because I want to be sure. I want to be absolutely sure. And when I saw that bird, I I looked at the white going to the trailing edge of its wings. I honed in on that. I watched it fly for about another 10 feet, and I double-checked that again. There was no way that it could have been anything but an ivory-billed woodpecker. I mean, I know the birds in North America. This was a bird I'd never seen.
0: If this bird has been out there, and this is, as you put it, the holy grail for, for birders, why have other birders not seen it?
1: Well, actually, people ask me that a lot. They say, well, considering how many thousands of bird watchers there are in the United States, surely if these birds still existed, some people would be seeing them. But the problem is bird watchers don't go out to these places when bird watchers go to the swamp, they you know, 99% of them go about 100 feet out on the boardwalk. They don't get down and dirty in the swamp, they, and they don't spend a lot of time dressed in camouflage, sitting still. It's been people like hunters and fishermen who've who've been coming back with interesting reports. These are the people who've been ignored, so it's not surprising to me at all that this bird... Considering how low its population must be, it's not surprising that it, it could have gotten by under the radar screen for so long
0: um, clearly your, your hope is that uh, the rediscovery of the bird will will trigger more action to protect what's what's left of uh, of this sort of habitat and you uh, or at least my interpretation of what you're you're writing here is that uh, you're you're a little miffed with the scientific establishment for not being more open to the possibility that that the bird might be out there and that we should uh, get about saving some of these woods. Uh, I want to read an excerpt uh, from the book. You write, The belief that this bird is extinct has been held so strongly for so long that it has become a tenet adhered to by many ornithologists as rigidly and dogmatically as the tenets of the most fundamentalist religious sects. I'm wondering, isn't that a little harsh? I mean... Uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, don't they? Yeah, that's right. But
1: on the other hand, I've met scientists who said that they had heard of credible reports of sightings of ivory bills, and they didn't investigate them because they didn't want to um, have it reflect badly on their careers. So when it reaches the point where it has that kind of chilling effect on the science, then there's a problem.
0: Now, as as I understand, part of your your argument in the book here is that there was more at stake in disputes like that than just the egos of the people or scientists involved. Your your point is, what happens to the bird, or what did happen to the bird, if it, it was out there, people were seeing it, and those claims were disregarded, and there was no additional protection or action toward the bird.
1: That's right. I mean, that, that's really what we have to worry about here, too. That we don't want our conservation efforts to get stalled. This was a very neglected habitat. I mean, it's one of the great ecological tragedies of the United States, that all the southern bottom land swamp forests were, were not protected. They were cut for decade after decade from the Civil War to the mid-20th century until there was really nothing left. This area where we've had the sightings really might just be a place the birds fly through. It's a narrow area of swamp, only about a mile wide. And there's, there is a really huge wooded area to the south of there, and, and there's a huge swamp to the north. And this might be just a passageway where the birds aren't really spending a lot of time.
0: Hmm. So uh, a lot more hunting to do.
1: A lot more. Yeah, we, we've only looked at something like 8% of the forest there. there there's half a million acres. And so it's it's a huge, very daunting task. Well,
0: it sounds like your life is going to be very busy. Mm-hmm. And uh, is this giving away too much, or, or do you have fresh evidence coming?
1: You know, I, I don't know if I should talk about it before it's public. Actually, at the American Ornithologist Union meeting in uh, Santa Barbara next month, we'll, we'll have some evidence. We'll have it present our acoustic evidence.
0: Well, I'm sure a lot of people will be listening. yeah. <laughs> Tim Gallagher is author of The Grail Bird, Hot on the Trail of the Ivory-Billed Woodpecker. It's published by Houghton Mifflin. He is also editor of Living Bird magazine. Mr. Gallagher, thank you for talking with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. There's more about Gallagher's account of the ivory-billed woodpecker at the Cornell Ornithology Labs website. The scientists challenging the evidence will publish their paper in an upcoming issue of the online journal, Public Library of Science Biology, and you can link to both websites via ours at livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Coming up, judging Judge Roberts on the environment. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The U.S. Senate is gearing up for one of its biggest jobs, confirmation hearings for a Supreme Court nominee. Judge John Roberts is the president's pick to replace retiring Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Roberts served just two years as a federal judge, so senators will likely have a lot of questions for him. Conservation groups say there are many things they'd like to know about Roberts, too. Glenn Sugamelli with the group Earth Justice, sees some red flags.
4: He has a decision that he wrote that calls into question the constitutional ability of Congress to protect endangered species and his views on access to courts, the ability of people to go to court to make sure that their rights are protected. We are not taking a formal position for or against the nomination. We are taking a formal position urging that the Senate look at it very carefully. There's only one chance to get it right.
0: Robert Percival has studied Judge Roberts through a green lens. He directs the environmental law program at the University of Maryland and he joins us from the NPR Studios in Washington. Mr. Percival, welcome to living on Earth. It's nice to be here now uh, environmental groups are focusing on an opinion that uh, Judge Roberts wrote in an endangered species case It's very interesting language that uh, Judge Roberts uses in this opinion it's uh, the case has to do with this uh, arroyo toad in California. Uh, which he calls a hapless toad that, for reasons of its own, lives its entire life in in California. What is it about this case that's drawing their attention?
5: Well, Judge Roberts uh, raised the question of whether or not the federal government had the constitutional authority to protect species that are so endangered that they exist only in one state and don't ever cross state lines.
0: What's what's special about the species only being within the boundaries of one state?
5: Well, the question is whether or not Congress has the power under the commerce clause to regulate purely intrastate activities, and most courts have found that because the protection of biodiversity has significant benefits for the economy that Congress can justify that regulation under its authority to regulate interstate commerce, even if a particular instance of the regulation might apply solely within state boundaries. So
0: this is about the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, which at first glance you would not think, or I as a layperson would not think, has much of anything to do with endangered species, but it's kind of the uh, the bedrock of, of that law, Right.
5: It's really the foundation for most of the federal regulatory infrastructure to protect the environment, to protect consumers, and to protect civil rights.
0: Do you have a guess as to what uh, Judge Roberts thinks on this? He didn't tip his hand in that opinion, but uh, what do you think he thinks?
5: Well, you really can't tell for certain. He did clerk for Justice Rehnquist, who has for several decades had an agenda to try to set constitutional limits on federal power. So this issue is something that probably has been on Justice Judge Roberts' mind for quite some time because it was raised as early as 1981 by his old boss, Justice Rehnquist, now Chief Justice Rehnquist. The other issue
0: that we've heard uh, environmentalists very concerned about has to do with uh, access to the courts. What, what is the issue there?
5: The question is really to what extent will citizens be permitted to go to court to help ensure that the environmental laws are implemented and enforced.
0: And why is this of uh, special importance for environmentalists?
5: Because the history of environmental law demonstrates that in virtually every instance it required citizen lawsuits to get agencies to carry out their statutory responsibilities to implement the environmental laws.
0: So th- So these are cases where the the environmental agency in, in question is either unable or, or unwilling to apply the law. A citizen can say uh, hey let's let's do this."
5: Yes, or if the agency has done something that the environmental groups believe is illegal under the law, they can sue that agency.
0: Uh, can you give me an example of where that's been particularly important?
5: Well, one example that is particularly relevant to Judge Roberts' nomination is a case that arose where the question was whether or not federal agencies could fund activities abroad that would wipe out the last remaining species of endangered species. Justice Scalia in that case said that even if that was illegal and an improper interpretation of the statute, citizens could not go to court to challenge it unless they could demonstrate that they actually had a plane ticket to visit specific endangered species in Sri Lanka or Egypt. Judge Roberts subsequently wrote a law review article where he defended this decision against harsh criticism. Now, one thing that's particularly important about this is that Justice O'Connor, who Judge Roberts would be replacing, had dissented in that case and had argued in an opinion that she joined that what Justice Scalia had done was really a, quote, slash and burn expedition through the law of environmental standing. So it seems clear that Judge Roberts would take a substantially narrower view of the ability of citizens to go to court to enforce the environmental laws than Justice O'Connor took.
0: Well, this seems to me like like a pretty big deal. A, you have this very important issue of particular importance to uh, environmentalists and environmental groups, and and B, you have uh, this fellow stepping into this uh, seat that has traditionally been the swing on, on this kind of uh, decision. Uh, is this something that environmental groups should be worried about when they look at uh, Judge Roberts and his record?
5: Well, it's something that it would be very important to hear Judge Roberts address during his confirmation hearings. The question is, will he be a justice more in the mold of Justice Scalia and Thomas, who have been trying very hard to cut back on the ability of citizens to enforce the environmental laws? Or will he be more like a Justice O'Connor, who has been much more moderate and understands the importance of citizens having access to the courts?
0: Robert Percival directs the Environmental Law Program at the University of Maryland. Thanks for joining me today.
5: Thanks. It's been a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, as we've heard, a little toad has been getting a lot of attention with John Roberts' nomination to the high court. The hapless toad Roberts wrote about, in his opinion, is the Arroyo Toad of Southern California. It's not the first time the toad has landed in court, and it won't be the last. Ilsa Setzel reports from member station KPCC in Los Angeles that a series of legal battles may determine the fate of this fragile amphibian.
6: As the sun sets in Southern California's Angeles National Forest, Little Rock Creek grows dark in the shadows of a steep canyon. An amber light catches the creamy blossoms of tall yucca plants and makes them glow like candles. Biologist Ruben Ramirez crosses the creek.
7: In Southern California, uh, generally you're only going to have two toads that you're really going to see most often. It's going to be the common western toad and then the arroyo toad.
6: Arroyo toads have lost at least 75% of their habitat to development, dams, and water diversions. Little Rock Creek is one of the few places they survive. Ramirez heads upstream a couple of miles. As the light fades, the sound of tree frogs crescendos into a chorus. Ramirez takes out a flashlight to search for arroyo toads. He spots them by the way their eyes shine in the light. Before long, he picks up a two-inch toad about the color and texture of an oatmeal raisin cookie, with tiny toes and big liquid eyes. just
7: a beautiful guy, isn't he?
6: Arroyo toads spend their days buried in moist sand. Only at night do the adults become active.
7: What he's doing right now is a release call because I'm just compressing him a little bit on each side as though I'm trying to amplex him for breeding. And he's a male and he's basically saying to get off me. I'm a male, I'm not a female.
6: Amplexus is the technical term for toad nookie.
7: So he'll go down tonight and do some soaking. He'll definitely forage tonight, looking for some ants. And I would not be surprised that he would basically find a nice spot and let off some advertisement calls, just trying to get some females' interest.
6: Ramirez says when the creek dries up, the toads will burrow deep into the ground and slip into a summer version of hibernation called estivation. They'll emerge again when it rains. 40 miles to the west in the Los Padres National Forest, biologist Nancy Sandberg dips a small green net into Piru Creek. She looks for arroyo toad tadpoles in a stretch of the creek where toads used to live. They've disappeared because the state releases unnaturally high amounts of water in the summer from an upstream dam. California's Water Resource Agency is proposing to fix the problem. Sandberg says it's one of the few hopeful signs in what could be a bleak future for the toads.
3: As I see it, no recovery efforts have been attempted yet. In fact, we're still trying to prevent the loss of existing habitat.
6: It took a lawsuit from an environmental group to force the government to establish critical habitat for the toad in the first place. But another lawsuit changed that dramatically. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recently cut back the amount of land designated as critical habitat for the toad, from more than 180,000 acres four years ago, down to fewer than 12,000 acres. The agency did so in response to a lawsuit from Southern California Home Builders, who said fish and wildlife had underestimated the economic impact. A federal court sided with the building industry. Andy Henderson, legal counsel for the Building Industry Association of Southern California, says the reduction in critical habitat will benefit regional planning efforts.
0: If critical habitat is designated too broadly, you can wind up with a situation where the private landowners would have no incentive to participate in regional planning of the type that would set aside habitat to benefit not just one species, but many.
6: The revised habitat designation left out large swaths of Southern California that are slated for development, although some areas may get protection under regional preservation plans. Sandberg takes issue with the federal government's revised economic
3: analysis. As far as I'm concerned, um, it was sort of an economic voodoo where Economists They um, calculate the goods and services that they obtain from an area, but they forget to, they don't include the inherent value of the area itself.
6: Fish and Wildlife won't talk about the issue. They're on notice that another lawsuit is coming from environmental groups. The service generally downplays the importance of critical habitat designations, saying most of the protection for an imperiled species comes through other means. With night settled in the Angeles National Forest, Arroyo toads advertise for mates. The males let out a soft, buzzing trill. Even with changes in the habitat designation, biologist Ruben Ramirez says his experience with the Arroyo toads gives him hope that they'll survive the rapid urbanization of Southern California.
7: What fascinates me is because I've been studying them for so long, every year they prove me wrong in what I think that they're capable of. I find them moving up slopes that I didn't think they could move. At least it gives me hope that with a little bit of proper management that we can actually really help them rebound. And they're just a beautiful animal.
6: (laughs) For Living on Earth, I'm Ilsa Setziol in Los Angeles.
0: Yellowstone National Park was first established in the late 19th century. It was home to the northern Rocky Mountain wolf. But predator control in the park in the early 1900s meant wolves were shot, trapped, and poisoned. For seven decades, the wolves were nowhere to be found in Yellowstone. An increase in scientific research and a change in public sentiment led to a plan to recolonize Yellowstone with wolves. Author Rick Bass says ten years after the wolves were reintroduced... The park has a new and unexpected vitality.
8: There is color in the land again. Or perhaps the color was always there, like a pigment in the soil that was simply rendered imperceptible for a while. How can black and silver wolves combine like pigment to unleash a new surge of yellow warblers and brilliant tanagers back into a landscape long absent such colors? How can the crimson blood of elk in the snow release a bluebird? Upon the wolves' return, so sudden was the transformation that it seemed a marvel that the landscape, brittle and fractured as it had become in the absence of even that one species, had been able to hold together as well as it had for those seventy or so years. In the ten years since the wolves have been back, they have reshaped huge sections of an awkwardly leaning ecosystem, one which in many places we did not even recognize as leaning. By pruning wildly excessive elk numbers, the Yellowstone wolves kept the elk herds on the move, allowing overgrazed areas to recover. The elk were no longer encamping in any one spot like feedlot animals, and the restored riverbanks served as nesting and feeding habitat for songbirds of different hues. Blink and a howl equals the color yellow. Now the elk are not living as long. Their trophic capacity is being redistributed with greater alacrity, greater vitality throughout the Yellowstone ecosystem. There is greater turnover in the mortality game upon which wild nature, and what we think of as a healthier nature, relies so powerfully. Where previously the overcrowded and static elk and deer herds conspired to keep stands of aspen from regenerating, browsing with sharp teeth the young aspen suckers as soon as they emerged, the beautiful groves of aspen with snow-white bark and quivering gold leaves in the fall are now prospering, flaring back up on the landscape like so many tens of thousands of autumn-lit candles. Entire mountain ranges are being painted anew. The return of the aspen and other deciduous saplings to the hoof-cut, denuded riverbanks once abused by too many elk has been good for more than songbirds and artists. Beavers also have prospered, able now to access their requisite building and feeding materials without needing to venture so far into dangerous territory. This has resulted in the return of more backwater ponds and pools and eddies. In these shallow areas of submersion, young cottonwoods prosper, more flame color, and more beaver habitat. We can spend centuries trying to chase down and quantify relationships in the natural world, but in a wild and healthy landscape there will always be vast quantities of unknown relationships and immeasurable consequences. It is in our last few big wild landscapes, I think, where the potential, the opportunity for discovery remains strongest and might be most easily or readily encountered. The wolves have returned home bringing great color and breathing a life force that some in an upside-down world view as destructive. They have become our instructors, and we are watching them with fascination, with our senses as well as our returning knowledge, like hunters ourselves, re-engaged and keenly alert.
0: Rick Bass lives in the Yak Valley of Montana. A longer version of this essay appears in the July-August issue of Orion Magazine. Just ahead, Mexico City has a new high-speed bus system. But will anybody get on board? First, this note on emerging science from Max Thielander.
4: Think of a fast-moving animal, and camels probably aren't at the top of your list. But camel racing is a long-standing and culturally important tradition among Bedouin Arabs. For hundreds of years, children as young as four have been favored as jockeys for their light weight, But last year, the United Arab Emirates Camel Racing Association banned the use of jockeys under 18 on the heels of allegations that the children were being kidnapped, kept in prison-like conditions, and deliberately underfed. Confronted with this human rights fiasco, some camel racing enthusiasts got innovative. They asked a Swiss company to develop a replacement. The result is a robot that weighs around 30 pounds and looks like a jockey-sized action figure complete with helmet and wraparound glasses. Mounted on the back of a camel, the robot's mechanical arms are capable of pulling reins and using a whip. The arms, in turn, are controlled by humans using handheld remotes chasing the camels in SUVs. The inaugural test race was attended by hundreds of cheering fans, as well as the UAE Minister for Presidential Affairs, who proclaimed it a tremendous success and said it marked, quote, a new development in this indispensable sport. Thousands of the robots, selling for about $2,000 each, are already on order. As for the children, some 250 of them have been returned to their homes. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Max Thielander.
0: And you're listening to Living on Earth.
3: Support for NPR comes from NPR Stations and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, online at MOTT.org, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924, on the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education, and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, from vision to innovative impact, 75 years of philanthropy. This is NPR National Public Radio.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young, and coming up, Mad maxing mileage, hybrid style. But first. Time now for your comments. In our interview with Kellen Betts about health problems related to office cubicles, she spoke about chemicals used to make them in the 1980s that have been known to cause sick building syndrome. Brian Miller is a builder who tunes in our program in Boulder, Colorado, he notes that these same chemicals are found in the average household many kitchen cabinets are made from the same material as the cubicles he writes and the plywood and strandboard found in our walls and floors is also permeated with many of the same chemicals as are the carpets wood finishes paints and plastic cups mr miller says he's appalled at the disregard for the health of tradesmen and homeowners shown by the manufacturers and vendors of such products Reporter Guy Hand's story, Mad About Magpies, about the birds folks love to hate, prompted June Pecker to send us a note. She hears our show in Christchurch, New Zealand, and says she is mad about magpies and loves them passionately. Miss Pecker admits she's an oddity in her homeland where magpies are reviled, trapped, and killed. David Deitch of Boulder, Colorado, also professed great affection for the bird. What I find interesting, Mr. Deitch writes, is how so many people seem to hate the animals that act most like themselves. Could they not see the irony in hating a bird that seemed to be, quote, driving out other birds? We recently aired a special on Nobel Peace Prize winner Wangare Mathai. The Kenyan scientist initiated a grassroots movement to reforest the landscape of her East African nation. Cathay Fish listens to Living on Earth in Chico, California. She writes The news nowadays is so depressing. We need more stories of how grassroots movements are creating change. I loved this story. It warmed my heart. Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. Write us at 20 Holland Street, Suite 408, Somerville, Massachusetts. 02144 is the zip. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. Mexico City has a new bus system. It's called the Bus Rapid Transit, or BRT, modeled on similar transportation systems in cities from Curitiba, Brazil, to Cleveland, Ohio. It has its own dedicated lanes on main city streets, so the buses don't have to compete with cars and trucks. Jana Schroeder reports on how the new system is faring and how it might help a city with some of the world's worst traffic and smog.
9: The new Metrobus corridor runs in both directions on the longest avenue crossing Mexico City. The 12-and-a-half-mile stretch on Insurgentes Avenue has 36 boarding stations. On a rainy Friday afternoon, the buses stopping at this station are packed. Santiago Ramirez tries to board a bus and gives up to wait for another. It's already full, he says. You have to push your way on, even though we're at the beginning of the northbound lane. A few minutes later, another bus arrives. I decide to climb on board and stand shoulder to shoulder with Alfonso Perez. I ask him what he thinks about the city's new Metrobus system. It's a good idea, says Perez, and should reduce air pollution. But he says the new system was launched before it was ready.
10: He says the quality of
9: service would be better if they hadn't rushed to bring it online. When asked what the hurry is all about, he said Mexico City Mayor Andrés López Obrador is about to leave his post and wants to inaugurate the new Metrobus as his last legacy. This complaint about the city mayor, who's resigning to run for president in next year's elections, is the criticism most heard about the BRT, but not the only one. Manuel Guerra is the director of the Autonomous Institute for Ecological Research. He says the Metrobus system can be very quick and efficient and believes that might motivate car owners to leave their vehicles behind. But he says Insurgente's avenue was a poor choice of location for the bus corridor.
10: So it was decided to be built on the main avenue of Mexico City, which is a, an avenue with a great tradition, with a lot of trees. is one of the few big avenues in Mexico City that had lots of trees on the sidewalks, and in the middle of the street.
9: To make room for the Metro bus, 1,000 trees were removed, an action protested by ecologists and residents. The city has promised it will plant six new trees around the city for each one cut down.
10: There are other possibilities where not so many trees had to be felled, and it had a much more logic of transportation efficiency because other alternatives would have linked the Metrobus with the subway lines and with other lines of surface uh, buses.
9: While the new Metrobus has some links to the subway, Manuel Guerra insists that Revolución Avenue, running parallel a few blocks over, would have been the better choice. He says environmentalists and urban planners weren't consulted on the Metrobus plan.
10: We had no access to the project. We were not invited to any discussions about the viability, about the characteristics, about the number of passengers, the number of buses, and so on. It was all decided in a closed circle inside City Hall.
9: Still, many in Mexico are happy about the city's attempt to replace old, polluting gas-powered small buses with the new, large, efficient diesel Metro buses. Although the city has an extensive subway system with over four million users daily, most of the city's public transportation is provided by privately owned microbuses run by powerful groups. According to the city's environment minister Claudia Scheinbaum, microbuses cause 20 percent of the harmful emissions polluting city air. It took us three
10: years to negotiate the Metrobus from the owners of the old buses to the new system. You can see in Insurgentes you don't see any any old buses circulating. Those old
9: buses were part of a poorly regulated system of microbus routes that crisscrossed the entire city. They only hold about 25 passengers, compared with a new bus's 160-person capacity. What microbus drivers earn depends on how many passengers they have, so they compete among themselves, driving dangerously and stopping anywhere to pick up a passenger, often creating traffic congestion.
10: We have substituted 350 buses for 80 buses. And the 350 buses used to be very old buses. So if you have a reduction, uh, both in local pollutants and in uh, greenhouse gas emissions, 150 of them are going to be uh, destroyed.
9: While destroying old microbuses may seem like an extreme measure, the city wants to show it's actually getting them off the streets and that they won't just show up in another part of the city where they'll continue to clog traffic and pollute the air. But that's exactly what some say is already happening. Miriam Gutierrez waits in line to board the new Metrobus. She's noticed less traffic on Insurgentes, but says some of the microbuses have ended up on Revolución Avenue, causing more congestion there. So while some like the new system, others fear it's a small fix for Mexico City's traffic and pollution woes. Although the city plans to add more Metrobus corridors... Some environmentalists say what the city really needs is a comprehensive public transportation plan with a long-term vision. For Living on Earth, I'm Janice Schroeder in Mexico City.
0: When hybrid cars first hit showroom floors, the main selling point was fuel efficiency. With engines powered by gas and electricity, autos like the Toyota Prius got 50 to 70 miles on a single gallon of gas. But hybrids are changing. A car like the new Honda Accord hybrid uses an electric motor to boost its gasoline engine, giving it more horsepower than the same model without the hybrid. Cambridge, Massachusetts Honda salesman James Bulger says these hybrids have traded in much of their potential fuel economy.
2: It's completely a different concept than what the first cars that were hybrid technology came out to do.
0: But these new hybrids don't sit well with a group of hybrid owners who are still driven by fuel efficiency. It's almost become an obsession for some. These mileage maniacs swap fuel economy tips on the Internet. They tweak their driving techniques to squeeze more and more miles from each tank of gas. Dave Bassage of Walton, West Virginia, is one of those mad about mileage types. And he joins us now from behind the wheel of his Toyota Prius. Dave, uh, where are you heading and uh, what kind of mileage are you getting right now?
11: Well, we're on McCorkle Avenue, which is near Charleston, West Virginia, uh, headed for a little town called St. Albans. We've been going about six miles so far, and right now we're getting 81.8 miles per gallon.
0: That's, that's pretty impressive, but I'm, I'm guessing you want uh, to do even better. So how are you going to improve on that through how you drive?
11: What we'll be doing is trying to minimize our energy flow to and from the battery of the, of the hybrid and to coast at every possible chance or actually a form of coasting that we call gliding. Um, the way the hybrid car works, or at least the way the Prius works, is that whenever you take your foot off the gas, the electric motors turn into generators and put electricity back into the battery. If you slightly depress your foot on the accelerator while you're doing that, you disengage those electric motors so that you're essentially just freewheeling.
0: And so, uh, gentle acceleration, right? Is that, is that the deal?
11: Yeah, we've been actually experimenting with different techniques for accelerating. There was a while when we thought that brisk was the way to go, but the more we've tested, the more we found that a pretty mild acceleration level is best. The car will show you both its instantaneous and cumulative fuel economy figures. And so essentially, we try to accelerate in a way that will maximize those instantaneous numbers,
0: which means keep that number just as high as you can. What's your personal best? What's the most mileage you've, you've had out of one, one tank of gas?
11: Uh, my best tank so far was 71 miles per gallon, which was my last tank. Uh, It seems like I'm getting better or the car's getting better at all times.
0: Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I should probably say that uh, Dave and I, we've we've known each other for a while. And Dave, as I recall, you, you didn't always drive the way you're describing driving here for us today. You used to be a pretty fast driver.
11: Uh, Yeah, Jeff, you remember correctly. Uh, People used to refer to it as Dave Warp Speed. Uh, I pretty routinely exceeded the speed limit, and my main goal was to just see how fast I could get wherever I wanted to go. Um, But, you know, it's amazing. Once you get all this instrumentation in front of you and you get that instant feedback that shows you just how well you're doing, um, it, it can change
0: you. Another thing I recall is you have a bit of a competitive streak and as I understand it you have found a way to make uh, this maxing out of your, your mileage. This has become a contest for you. What, what do you have planned along those lines?
11: Well what we'll be doing in a couple of weeks is that four of us will be driving one Prius taking turns behind the wheel non-stop. Uh, we'll start at six o'clock on a Friday on a full tank of gas and drive until we run out. And Our goal is just to see how far we can possibly get on a single tank of gas.
0: Hmm. And and this is pretty organized. You've got a a, a course laid out and and all of this stuff?
11: Yeah, one of the other drivers um, has discovered a stretch of road where he's been able to consistently score 100 mile per gallon legs. Uh, He just suggested what would be possible if we could only get a few other drivers to help and a few of us stepped up. So we're coming from all points of the compass to uh, have fun going nowhere for a whole weekend in Pittsburgh. (laughs)
0: You've basically turned driving like my grandma into a contest here, haven't you?
11: Yeah, isn't that amazing?
0: (laughs) How did all this come about? How did you hook up with all of these other Prius drivers anyway?
11: Um, Well, when I first got interested in a hybrid vehicle and I started doing research online, I discovered there were a number of discussion forums where people compared notes about their cars. And uh, and that's how I kind of hooked up with this guy. You know, believe it or not, even though I'm considered a fanatic about my fuel economy, I'm probably the least fanatical of the four of us who will be driving and actually have had the least success in terms of high miles per gallon numbers. Um, the others have all done even better than my 70-mile-per-gallon tank. Uh, pardon me for a second. I'm dealing with a traffic situation here.
0: Sure. that takes. That t- I think that takes priority.
11: Yeah, we're caught up to somebody actually going slower. A piece of earth-moving equipment. <laughs>
0: You don't really expect uh, everybody else out on the road to drive the, the way that you're driving with this almost uh, hyper-attention to, to detail about uh, saving energy with every uh, push on the on the gas pedal, do you? Um, no,
11: not at all. Um, certainly, you know, those of us who drive like this, we put a lot more energy into our driving than most people will do. But there are aspects of what we do that others may choose to uh, take on. It could be as simple as just making sure you've got good good tire pressure in your tires. It could be slowing down by five miles per hour or ten miles per hour, uh, and recognizing that that could save you almost that many miles per gallon. Um, if you think of it as what's going into your pocketbook, then maybe that gives a little more incentive to to drive a little slower.
0: Uh, Passed a gas station yet? Uh, passing one right now. Do you, do you notice uh, what's what's a gallon of gas going to cost you there in Charleston?
11: You know, I don't even pay as much attention to that as I used to. (laughs) I believe we're up just shy of $2.30. I
0: I think that's a very telling comment, that the guy doesn't even know how much a a gallon of gas is. Everyone else, uh, I'm I'm guessing, is uh, pretty keenly aware of that.
11: Yeah, they probably are. I have done the math and figured out it costs me just about 3 cents a mile to drive this car in gas. Wow. Mostly, I've noted for the first time in my life, I find myself stopping at gas stations for something besides gas. I need to replenish me more often than I need to replenish the car.
0: When he's not driving his Toyota Prius around, Dave Bassage works for the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection. Thanks for talking with us today, Dave. Thank you, Jeff. On the next Living on Earth, he picked cotton at age four, wrestled professionally in his 20s, made a small fortune fixing cars and trucks and flew airplanes for the U.S. mail. And when he left this world, he left behind a brand new tomato that people still grow and eat today. Meet Radiator Charlie.
9: Anything I ever wanted to do, I've done it. I've always had a, a mind of doing things that nobody else couldn't do
0: The story of Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter Tomato, next time on Living on Earth. that cars and trucks, hybrid or not, make as they cross the Rudenkirchner Bridge in Cologne, Germany. With a few well-placed microphones and some studio savvy, Michael Rosenberg created this sonic symphony. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Eileen Balinski, Chris Ballman, Steve Gregory, and Ingrid Lobet, with help from Jenny Cecil Moore, Kelly Cronin, and Michelle Queter. Our interns are Max Thielander and Sarah Williams. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Steve Kerwood is the executive producer of Living on Earth. Allison Dean composed our themes, environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear. You can find us at livingonearth.org. I'm Jeff Young.
3: Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. Ten percent of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the Earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the Oak Foundation for coverage of marine issues.
0: This is NPR, National Public
6: Radio.